Well, we've been in a series of messages uh, that we feel like the Lord's been speaking to us out of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And if you notice, we have these t-shirts, Acts 2.42. If you're a visitor, um, you know, we don't normally, I don't normally preach in a t-shirt, but um, we're we're trying to advertise these. So uh, Aiden designed these, and this is helping us raise funds for our mission trip. So go out there and buy a dozen. Okay. Um, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And we've said this year that this is kind of an outline for us for the year. And the last three weeks, we've kind of gone in inverse order, and we've talked about what does it mean that the early church devoted themselves to prayer? I want to continue with that today. This is our fourth week on prayer. And actually, I'm going to do something today that in 26 years of preaching, I don't think I've ever done with the exception of Mother's Day and Father's Day which you do pretty much every year on Mother's Day and Father's Day. But other than that, I don't think I've ever done this in 26 years, and that is I want to speak directly to a certain segment of our population here in the church. I want to speak directly about prayer to men. The Apostle Paul, when he was talking to Timothy and giving directions for worship in Ephesus, he said this, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So what he's doing there, he's he's actually in the context, he's given instructions for how to have public worship with men and women in the town of Ephesus, right? And so he's given instructions, here's how you should do it. And the first thing he says is, I want men to pray. Now, why do you think he said that? I mean, why, why, why would you need to say that? I mean, maybe, maybe they weren't praying and he wanted them to. Maybe the key there is without anger or disputing. Maybe they had a penchant to fight, you know, as sometimes we men do. And, and so maybe he was like, hey, just the, the main thing is without disputing or anger. Or maybe it's something more fundamental than that. Maybe it's the fact that there is power when men as sons and brothers and fathers and husbands go to war in prayer for their family. See, I believe there is a power in prayer when men stand up and fight for their families. Now look, that's not to say that there's not power when, when women pray, okay? I'm not saying that today. Please don't anybody take it that way. I'm not saying there's not, there's not power. We all know, we all have a testimony of some woman in our life that prayed for us. And we are where we are because of that, right? So I'm not, I'm not degrading women here, but I, I think the ladies would appreciate the fact that I'm calling men up. Now, you know, we've got, I just need to real quickly before I dive into this, I need to give you a couple disclaimers or warnings, okay, about this message. The, warning number one is, what I'm about to say is not exactly going to be politically correct. <laughs> I, I just... So I, I don't. So I, now look, not everything in political correctness is bad. You know, I, I, Marlene works at U of L. One of the things they have there, which I think is great, is they always say "person" before "disability." So you don't say "disabled person." You say "a person with a disability" or "person with special needs." And I kind of like that because that goes right along with Christian theology, actually, because the Bible says we're made in the image of God. So when I meet somebody, whatever else is true about them, the first thing that's true is they're made in the image of God and they have worth and value and dignity. So they're not defined by their disability. So it's a person with a disability, a person with a special, I like that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff in political correctness that doesn't help us like that. In fact, it obscures truth 
and keeps us from saying the truth. So I'm going to try to speak some truth today, and it won't be politically correct. And I'm just warning you ahead of time, don't say I wasn't warned. Okay, number two is oftentimes when you have a message like this, the enemy will try to come in because Satan is the cosmic pervert. Now, what I mean by that, I mean that in the appropriate sense of the word. The word pervert means to turn upside down or to twist. And so what will happen is in a message like this, when truth is being spoken, the enemy will often try to come in and bring condemnation. And he'll, and he'll take, when I'm calling men up, this enemy will often try to make you feel condemned for your past or what you didn't do. And I want you to know that if you start feeling that, guys, if you start feeling some condemnation as I'm talking, that ain't the Holy Ghost. And it's not me either. So you know where it's coming from. Now, if there's conviction, if the Holy Spirit says, hey, you haven't been doing this and you need to, then conviction is always hope-based. Condemnation will just be gray, dark, I'm bad, uh, you know, I suck as a husband. No, that, that's not God. If it's conviction, it'll be, hey, here's where you need to change, and you can change because I'm with you. Right? That's conviction of the Holy Spirit. So, here's the big idea. I believe that we are called by God and designed by God, gentlemen, to go to war for our families in prayer. I mean, there's just something in us that's built for war. Why is it that we like war movies? I mean, why, left to my own, if I get to pick the movie at my house, which doesn't happen often, but when it does, I'm going to pick a war movie or a documentary from World War II. I just had this propensity for it. I, I, I like war movies. I, I love fighter jets. I mean, I remember years ago, I had the two older boys at Thunder Over Louisville, and there was a, a jet that was coming by, and they were showing how slow the jet could fly. Because, you know, in dogfights, it's not just about speed. It's also who can fly slow. That's actually part of dogfights. And so this jet comes by, and then it just goes, and he just throws. Did you see all that come out of my mouth? Wow. Wow. Anyway, the jet, it just throws down the throttle, and it takes off, and this is just this wrong. And I've got the two older boys, and it's just like, it's pounding your chest. And I looked down, and I was literally jumping up and down. I was, there's just something in, I like that power, right? You know, when, when uh, Caroline's dad was being installed at the, the Harry S. Truman, which is an aircraft carrier, uh, and we got to be there as part, this has 86 F-18 fighter jets on board. Three helicopters, reconnaissance planes, they have a surgical theater, they have three attorneys, they have a dentist, they have a Starbucks on that sucker. Yeah, not kidding. And 100,000 tons of steel. And there was just, I was just walking around going, <laughs> yeah, there's just something about that. I remember years ago, I was kind of down, and I was talking to a friend of mine named Greg. He no longer lives here. And I was pouring my heart out to him, and we got to the end. I got to the end, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, sounds like you need to shoot something. <laughs> so we went to the gun range, and I, I felt so much better, actually. It was like therapy. <laughs> what, why am I saying that? For some reason, I don't know what it is, there's something in us as men that wants to shoot something. We, 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 we have a propensity for war, and as I've been thinking and praying about that, it occurred to me that perhaps, I'm just throwing this out for your consideration, perhaps God put that there for his purpose. Perhaps that's not a result of the fall. Perhaps that's not a result of sin in this world, but God put it in us so we would go to war in prayer for our family. I mean, could it be? That Jesus 
in creation designed us for spiritual warfare. Now, look, I'm not talking about beating people into the kingdom, okay, just so we're clear. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson has a great story about his first convert. Uh, he was a little kid uh, growing up in Montana, and he records this in his book uh, called The Pastor, a Memoir. And he tells a story of, he, he, there was a bully in his little third grade classroom, whatever it was, uh, named Garrison Johns. And Garrison Johns was a bully, and he found out that Eugene was a Christian, right? So every day he would punch him. He would beat him up every single day and call him a Jesus sissy. Well, Eugene went home, he talked to his mom, and his mom said, look, that's just the way it's always been in this world with Christians, so you should get used to it. That's what she told him. And she said, here, what you need to memorize, and she gave him scriptures from the Sermon on the Mount, you know, bless those who curse you, pray for your enemies, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, and he didn't really like those verses. (laughs) And then this is what he writes. He said, March came. I remember that it was March by the weather. The winter snow was melting. There were still patches of it here and there. The days were getting longer. I was no longer walking home in the late afternoon dark. And then something unexpected happened. I was with my neighborhood friends on this day, seven or eight of them, when Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting, working himself up to the main event. He had an audience, and that helped. He always did better with an audience. That's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me, at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good. I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering and egging me on. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. A torrent of biblical invective poured from them. Although nothing with what I would later in life read in the Psalms. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. More cheering, more crimson. Now my audience was bringing the best out of me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. Um, Okay, I think you know this is not what I'm talking about, right? That's just the anti-example there. That's not how Jesus talked to people and treated people, okay? I am talking today about a natural God-giving desire and drive to go to war in prayer for our brothers and sisters, our wives, our children, our church, our nation. And I think, guys, you, you, you would agree with me that a lot of times uh, when we talk about prayer, people assume that the prayer warriors are women. In fact, I read just this week, I was looking it up, and this one ministry that kind of tries to coordinate intercessors, they said 80% of the people who sign up on their website as intercessors are women. I think we all had the testimony. I had a mom that prayed for me. I had a grandmother that prayed for me. Up until recently, I had only heard one testimony of anybody ever saying, I had a dad that prayed for me every night, and that was my dad's testimony. My grandfather, who was a poor, illiterate, 
sharecropper who worked somebody else's field for his all his whole life probably I think his entire life never owned the land he worked on every night he would call out the names of his eight children to God he would call it let Carol dad was the eighth and he would cry go down the list all eight of them and he'd cry out in that old farmhouse had small thin you know walls dad could hear it every night his name being let me tell you something that is a legacy and that is a heritage greater than any amount of money that could ever be given to me and gentlemen, we want to hand on that legacy, that heritage. I want our children to be able to say, I had a dad that went to war for me. I mean, ask yourself some questions. Do our homes need protection? I mean, do our kids face any dangers? Are, are, are there any forces in the world that want to destroy our marriage? Is there any spiritual force out there that wants to hurt our kids? Are there any that want to steal our children's innocence? Do you think there's forces in the world that want to take their self-worth? Or how about this, want to steal their hope? I'm going to tell you, guys, there, like never before in my life anyway, have I ever seen as much hopelessness out there as there is today. Up until recently, listen to me, up until recently I had performed or attended more funerals for suicides than I had COVID. Just let that sink in for a second. Up until recently, that was the truth. Do you think there's forces out there that want to steal the future of our children? There is. We're at war. Whether you want to believe it or not, this is not a game. Satan wants your kids. I mean, we got the Super Bowl coming up. We're in a contest that would make the Super Bowl look like a Pop Warner contest. We're in a contest for the earth. Ian Bounds put it this way. He said, what the ch- and he knew something about prayer. He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. Listen, I, I, there's, and, and guys, I want to tell you this. I, and this is what I believe, okay? I believe there is no one on earth that has more authority in prayer for your family than you do. I believe that. I, I believe there's a certain authority that I have as, as a pastor. And when you come into this church and you submit to the, the elders and the leadership of this church, I believe that I have a certain power in prayer. That's why we spend a lot of time praying around here because that's part of the pastoral task. Right. I'm, I'm to feed the sheep and care for the sheep. And part of that is prayer, right? But let me tell you something. I don't have more authority in prayer for your family than you do. No one does. The pastor doesn't. The pope doesn't. The president of the United States doesn't. Nobody has the authority in prayer that you have. And when you step up to the plate, a certain dynamic takes place. I can't fully explain this. I don't have words for it. But there's a spiritual power that is released. There's an ignition. And a new authority is engaged. And no one can do it for you. John Piper put it this way. He said, where a man belongs is up early and alone with God seeking vision and direction for his family. And I know some of you are thinking, listen, I don't have time for that. And I get that. Oh, do I get that? I'm busy too. But if you don't have time, here's what you do. Make it. Find it. Cancel something. Turn the TV off if you have to. We're not talking about maximizing shareholder profits here. We're talking about the eternal destiny of our children. And war is never cheap. War is never comfortable. It's never safe. And to pray is to go to war. 
Oswald Chambers put it this way in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He says this, prayer does not equip us for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the battle. And it makes no difference where you are. (laughs) The Apostle Paul put it this way. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he, he's, he's speaking to those in Ephesus again, and, and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, why would he say that? Because there's a devil, and he has schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a battle, and you're part of it. And then he goes on. After he talks about all the armor we're supposed to put on, verse 17, he says this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. What is he saying? He's saying there is a war. Now look, I'm going to tell you, if we just got that down, it would help us out a lot. Because a lot of times something bad happens in our life and what is the first thing that we're shocked? I can't believe something bad happened. In, in a lot of counseling that I do, I, I spend the first however much just telling people, yeah, bad stuff happens. Because we're in a war. We really shouldn't be shocked. Right? There's a war. So number one, he says there's a war. But number two, you're in the war. But number three, you've been equipped for the battle. You've got a sword and you've got prayer. So I wanted to illustrate this. So I brought something down from my office. Because every once in a while, i got to pull this sucker out, okay? So, hold on a second. It is, come on, right, huh? This is, is a replica of a late medieval Scottish claymore, all right? Two-handed broadsword. And I keep it in my office because it reminds me, or this is what I say, it reminds me of this text. And also, uh, Hebrews 4 compares the word of God to a sword. Uh, and it, it, here it says, the, it says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pretty hard to misinterpret that. So I keep this sword up there in case any counseling sessions go bad. <laughs> I have a weapon. Okay. Um, but, but because it reminds me of that. Now, here's the deal. Actually, this functions in my office as an ornament. Today, it's functioning as a sermon illustration. But most of the time, it's just an ornament. Now, let me ask you a question. Will I ever understand the nature of the sword or how to use it? No. Because this sword was never designed to be an ornament. It was designed to be a weapon in battle. Now, here's the deal. If you see your Bible as an ornament, you will never understand it. You'll never understand the Bible. If you see the Bible as a history book that you can learn about what happened 2,000 years ago, you'll never understand it. You might get a couple facts, but you'll look at it and you're like, I don't get it. If you see your Bible as an owner's manual, you're not going to get it. I mean, I mean, a few years ago, several years ago, my dad bought us a, 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 a Honda Quadra-Cut mulching system lawnmower, and it worked great for a couple years, and then it broke. And when it broke, I pulled out the owner's manual. But I didn't pull out the owner's manual until it broke. I had it for two years. I didn't even look. I didn't even know where the owner's manual was for two years. And if you see the Bible as just an owner's manual, you're only going to pull it out when your life is broken. Yeah. 
And you'll never understand it until you see Scripture as a sword to be used in battle. And when you see that, then you're going to see stuff you never saw before. Now, let me tell you, in the same way, if you don't realize we're in a war, you will never understand prayer. Gentlemen, you'll never, if you, until you get that down, that there is a warfare going on, that we have an enemy that wants our wives, that wants our children and, and, and grandchildren. Uh-huh. Yeah, grandchildren. Yep. Until we get that, we're not going to understand prayer. And yes, prayer is for communion with God, absolutely. And it's to be teamed up with the sword so we can go into battle. Everybody got that? Okay. So listen. I believe, guys, there's something in us that is designed that wants to go to war, and you don't have to be special. You don't have to have a spiritual gift of prayer. You don't have to be particularly religious for things to happen when you pray. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is an awesome text to me because it says Elijah was just a man. I remember Arthur Pink one time said, uh, God suffers it such that the best of men are men at best. In other words, Elijah, we tend to think, well, he's a prophet. Just a man like us. And what happened? Something happened when it prayed and it changed the world. So how do we do that? How do we go to war in prayer? I'm going to give you a a few examples from the scriptures very quickly now of how to war in prayer for our families. Now, I am going to direct these towards the men, but what I'm about to tell you goes for men and women and everybody else. Well, there's just men and women, but I might get canceled now, but that whatever, okay? This works for everybody, okay? Um, And so I'm going to give you examples of three fathers in scripture that prayed for their children. And grandchildren, okay? So here they are. The first one is Job. And what Job does is pray for his children's relationship with God. I'm going to read it to you. Job 1. This is what we do. This is an example to us. Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So we know a little bit about his character already, right? He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Okay, that's a lot. Um, I'm tired just reading that. Okay, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their home, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, notice what's going on here. It says, early in the morning, meaning this was a priority for him, and it was his custom, it was his, get the word right, regular custom. And what Job is doing here is performing the duty of a priest. For his family. In the Old Testament, that's what a priest is. A priest represents uh, the people to God and God to the people and makes sacrifices. So there's blood sacrifices to atone for sin. And that's what he's doing. He's doing the function of a priest on behalf of his children. Why? Because he's concerned about their standing before God. 
Now, I want you to know, I believe that you guys, you are the priest of your home, and it is your job to intercede on behalf of your family for their relationship with God. Because there's an enemy out there that wants to hurt their relationship with God. Now, look, Job, in his era, he was in the Old Testament. And that in, in redemptive history, that was different than where we are. That was before Christ. So for us, after the cross, our job is not to sacrifice animals. Our job is to remind our children of the once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to teach them the gospel. We need to pray the gospel over them. And and what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus came. He he was God incarnate. He took on human flesh and and he lived the life we should have lived. And he preached the kingdom and he demonstrated the kingdom. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead to say this is what the kingdom is like. And he preached the gospel of the kingdom. The Bible says, and then he went to the cross and he there died for me. You know why? He died because I had sinned and he took his sin upon himself. He had no sin. And he took your sin too upon himself and he died on a tree. Cursed is everyone hanging on a tree, scripture says. And so he took a curse for me. But he didn't stay dead because when he went into the grave, he conquered death and hell and the grave and Satan himself. And he rose from the dead and he lives forever. He reigns. He's in charge. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he's coming back one day. That is the gospel. And we are now part of the kingdom. And in part of that, what that means is we're part of his great campaign to make the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And you are to remind your children of that and remind them they don't get into the kingdom by their performance but by grace it is by grace you have been saved all of us you see Jesus said when he was here he said the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart soul mind and strength and and he got that from Deuteronomy and you know what Deuteronomy says Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 it says love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength but then it goes on These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What's the point? The point is wherever you are on the road of life, just whenever it is, whenever it comes up, impress upon your children. That they're to love God supremely and remind them of the gospel. When they're a success, remind, oh, that's good that you're a success. We celebrate the success. But remember, you're not accepted because of your success. You're not adopted into the family of God because of your success, but because of Jesus. Right? And then when they fail, you know what you do? You remind them of the gospel. You're not accepted based on your performance. You can repent, turn to him, be forgiven of all of this, and, and, and it's by grace we're saved. You remind him of the gospel. You pray the gospel. I'll just say, side note, that implies that you know the gospel yourself. And that you let it in yourself. And then you can minister it to other people. All right, so that's the first one. Second, second father is Jacob. Pray not only for the relationship with God, but pray for God to bless their future. 
In, in Genesis 48, uh, Jacob is an old dude, and he gathers around him his son Joseph and his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he lays hand, he actually lays hands on them, kind of crosses over, and he's blessing them. And here's what he prays, Genesis 48, verse 15, then he blessed Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Now notice a couple of things of what he's doing here. Not only is he praying for their future, but he's speaking a blessing over them. Now, I don't have time to go into it all right now, but there's a lot of things in the Bible about blessing and curses, okay? Many times, I don't have time to break this down, a lot of the times it has to do with obedience. Like if you obey, there's a blessing, and if you disobey, there's a curse. Like there's a lot of that in the Old Testament, there's a lot of that, but a lot of the things that talk about blessing and cursing is really about what you say, what you say over your kids. And, 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 you know, he's not just speaking a blessing, or he's speaking prophetically, actually. And if I had time, we would, you know, unpack that as well, how just prophetic he actually is being. But the point is, he's performing the role of a prophet. Job was acting like a priest to his family. Here, here uh, Jacob is acting like a prophet to his family. Let me ask you a question. What do you see ahead for your children? Do you see anything ahead for them? One of the ways you can pray for them is to ask God to show you. And then bless them in that and pray for them in that. And if you still don't see anything, maybe you're praying, God, show me something. You don't see anything. Then just ask yourself this question. What godly characteristics are there in them? And then bless that. Call that out of them. You know, if if you've got a kid that's very artistic, very gifted in art, you know what you say? Man, I see how you are really gifted in art. And you know what? You know who else is an artist? God is an artist. I mean, if you don't believe it, just go to the Canadian Rockies. Go to the Grand Canyon. Go, turn on National Geographic and, and watch one of those uh, shows where they go up under the ocean and there's a coral reef and there's orange and pink and purple fish. And tell me God doesn't like color and art and beauty. And, and so when you have a kid like that, you can just call that out of them. I'm yeah, blessed. That's a, that, you know, God likes art. You, if you see leadership skills in them. Maybe, maybe you see, you know, sometimes when your kids are small, like this doesn't bless you a whole lot, but sometimes you have kids that are fearless. And when they're young, that makes you nervous. But you just say to yourself, that's a godly characteristic. God's going to use that one day. They, they're really bold. You just say, hey, they might be bold and getting in trouble when they're young, but you just go, you know what? God's going to use that boldness one day. I mean, how many times have we said that, babe, for all four of our kids? We look at each other. God's going to use that one day. And he is. You just call it out of them. When I was a kid, I'll never forget this. My mom and I were at a Burger Queen. Now, not to be confused with a Burger King or a Dairy Queen, this was a Burger Queen. Do you remember them? Burger Queen. I think they changed the name to Druthers. Remember they had that, I'd rather go to Druthers restaurant. Remember that? Okay. Raise your hand if you remember, okay, Burger Queen. Okay, a few of you. All right. So we were there, and I was just a little kid. I don't even remember. I I, I don't know, six, seven years old. I don't know what it was, young. 
and it was my mom and I there, and we were sitting, and we were getting something to eat, and um, the, uh, a family came in, and they had a little boy who was, uh, he was a person with a great disability, and he was walk- had a walker, and somehow crippled, and his head was to one side, and, and he had drool coming out, and I saw this boy, and something on the inside of me, it, my heart just broke, and I just started crying, and tears were flowing down my face, and mom's like, what, what's wrong? And I said, it's not right. It's not right. I didn't even really have words to say it, but I, what, I, what I was feeling, the injustice of what this little boy was suffering, it wasn't right. And my mom could have said a hundred things in that moment. And knowing her, she probably did. But the one thing, <laughs> the one thing, actually, sorry, mom, couldn't help it. It was the devil. The devil made me do Okay. But seriously, back to the story. The one thing that I remember that she said, this is 40-something years ago, you guys, and I remember it to this day. She looked at me and she said, God's given you a compassionate heart for people. And he's going to use that one day. What do you think that did to a little boy's heart? To know that God had given me a heart of compassion. And maybe one day I would use it to shepherd. Bless their future. Gentlemen, what you say, moms, what you say, dads, what you say, it makes a difference. And it's not too late. Maybe if you've spoken things that weren't right over your family, you can now start saying the right things. The last one, last father, I want to give you an example from his, his name was David. So we had Job and Jacob, and I looked for a third one with a J name, but I couldn't find it. So he's going to go with David. Just J, J David. Um, uh, pray for their desire to obey God. Here's what, here's what David prayed, First Chronicles 29, over his son Solomon, verse 19. He said, and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Now, here's what David's doing here. David, as king, is concerned with governing, right? He's concerned with leading. And and David, in his life, had wild success and miserable failures, which blesses me that he was called a man after God's own heart. Anyway, that blesses me. Uh, and as part of his desire to govern as king, he wants Solomon to learn to be governed by God. So we talked about being a priest and a prophet, but the the whole idea of being a king is not just to rule so people, you know, obey your orders. No, it's to get them to be governed by God. Like as parents, we're not just wanting our kids to obey us, to obey us because life is easier, which it is when they obey But it's not just for that. It's because we want them to learn to obey God, to be governed by God. And then something struck me this week. I was kind of reading on in the Chronicles there. If you go to the next page, 2 Chronicles 1, God comes to Solomon at night and he says, what would you like for me to do for you? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if God showed up in your bedroom tonight and said, what do you want? Name it. Carte blanche. Anything. Well, what would you say? I would like an Audi A8, you know, LW12 <laughs> with the Autotiptronic Quattro drivetrain, 412 horses under the hood, please. 
Would you ask for what would you ask for? You know what, you know what Solomon asked for? Look at this. Second Chronicles 1, verse 8. Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead these people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Wow. Did you notice that? His prayer life reflected the prayer life of his father's. I mean, Solomon asked for something very similar to what his dad had prayed over him. Isn't this fascinating? Listen, often, it's not always true, but often our children's prayer lives will reflect our own. Which I find both exciting and horrifying at the same time. Do you remember, and and forgive me, okay, forgive me for using a country song as an illustration, but... You remember, have you ever heard the old country song uh, by Rodney Atkins called Watching You? And in the story, you know, sometimes country songs, they tell a story. And the guy's telling the story, and he puts his little, he's got his little kid, I don't know, he's five or whatever. And he puts, he's got him, you know, buckled in, and he gives him some French fries and a drive-thru. And somebody pulls out in front of him, and they slam on the brakes, and the kid's fries go flying. And the kid says a four-letter word that starts with an S. I'll let you figure it out. And he says, where'd you learn to talk like that? And he says, I've been watching you. Dad, ain't that cool? I'm your little buckaroo. I want to be like you. Well, they get back to the house, and he gets the kid out, and then he gets down on his knees. And he says, God, he's watching me. you got to help me be a better man. That night, he's putting his son into bed, and he puts his son into bed, and the, and the kid jumps out of bed, gets down on his knees, clasps his hands, closes his eyes, and starts praying. And he says, hey, little man, where'd you learn to pray like that? And he says, Dad, I've been watching you. Ain't that cool? I'm a little buckaroo. I'm going to be like you. I'm going to grow up as big as you are. Gentlemen, they're watching us. I'm 50 years old. I'm still watching my dad. See, our prayer life will not only produce fruit in terms of answers to prayer, but it will set an example that others will see. And there's other fruit, too. I don't have time to go into a lot of it. I'll just throw one little piece of fruit out there from, from the fruit of when we, when we pray like this, when we lead in prayer. I, I was walking through my office uh, this week, and I saw a little book I haven't picked up in over 20 years, probably 20 years or so, uh, by Storm, I don't know how you pronounce her name, Stormy Omardian or, or Martian. Martian sounds more fun, but I've heard it both ways. Uh, anyway, she wrote this book called The Power of a Praying Husband. Now, she had written The Power of a Praying Wife first, and then she wrote The Power of a Praying Husband, and people said, well, why didn't your husband write it? And his answer was, if I wrote it, it would have been a brochure, type double-spaced with pictures. <laughs> so she wrote it. Um, and in the book, I just flipped it open, you know, and I started reading, and, and, and one of the things she points out is that husbands are instructed to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and usually we end the quote there, because it's safer, But the rest of that says, and gave himself up for her. In other words, the job description of a husband is to die, to lay down his life for his wife. And she says one of the ways that you can lay yourself down for her is in prayer. 
for her. And then she said, and I quote, I'm quoting, so nobody thinks anything else. I'm quoting her. She says, there is nothing more attractive to a woman than a man who is strong in the Lord. And then she said, again, a quote, it makes him irresistible. (laughs) Got my attention. Right? And I thought, is that true? Well, let me just ask. Let me just ask, ladies. Ladies, if your husband came to you and said, I want to lay down my life for you. I want to take weight off of you. I want to take pressure off of you. I want to make your life easier. How can I pray for you? Would you find that attractive at all? Okay. And I'm going to say to the young men who are here, this is something you're not going to hear in the world. The world is going to tell you women are a certain way. And I'm going to tell you godly women aren't that way. Now, Now, that's not the reason we pray, but it is a nice side effect. Because some of us need all the help we can get. Years ago, I'll close with this story. Uh, years ago, uh, Marlene and I went to college in, at Bethany College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was a, it was a school to become missionaries. And, and everybody double majored there. You had Bible major, but you also had a cross-cultural studies major. You double majored. And... And so everybody that taught there had been a missionary at some place or another. And one of the guys there had been in East Africa, I think amongst the Maasai people group. Don't call me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was the Maasai people group. And they told a story that in this village where they were, where they were working, a number of people had become believers. And the men would go out into the bush, out into the, where like the jungle was, and, and they would have a time of prayer. But they had, each, each of the men had their own private places to pray. And they would walk out into the book, and they would do it so often every day that a path would be worn where they would walk out to pray. And if one of the guys quit having his time with the Lord and quit praying for his family, the grass would actually start to grow back. And this is how they held each other accountable. They said this. When they saw somebody like that, they would say, brother, the grass grows on your path. And that's all they had to say. So here's my question. Brothers, is the grass growing on your path? In the words of Leonard Ravenhill, no man is greater than his prayer life.